Hello and welcome to episode 65 of Can We Still Be Friends, a podcast that tests the limits of the friendship between two people who mistake movie taste for personal morality. I'm Nate Goss, here with Ryan Epling. For this episode, we're taking you back 60 years to discuss Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. We have both seen this movie, but for too long we've been ashamed to admit that we really can't recall much about it. So it's always been one that we've wanted to watch with a more careful eye. As fans of Hitchcock, we felt it was high time we talk about one of his movies here on the podcast. Time has been kind to Alfred Hitchcock, and it's been especially kind to Vertigo. Though many saw Hitchcock as a genre filmmaker when he was working, he of course is now known as one of the finest directors of all time. Vertigo, though poorly received upon its release, is now considered a masterpiece, replacing Citizen Kane at the top of Sight and Sound's 2012 list of the greatest films of all time. Even people who haven't seen Vertigo would probably recognize any one of its iconic elements. Whether it's Saul Bass's poster or opening credit sequence, Edith Head's costumes, Bernard Herrmann's score, or Robert Burke's cinematography, Vertigo is officially in the canon of great films. But does that mean Vertigo really is any... Yeah, who are we kidding? Of course it's good. Let's just talk about Vertigo. Keep listening. You haven't told me everything. No, I've told you enough. Well, who's the guy and who's the wife? Out. I've got things to do. I know. The one that phoned. Your old college chum, Elster. Midge, out, please. Out. The idea is that the beautiful Mad Carlotta has come back from the dead and taken possession of Elster's wife. Oh, now, Johnny, really, come on. Well, I'm not telling you what I think. I'm telling you what he thinks. Well, what do you think? Well, I... Is she pretty? Carlotta? No, not Carlotta, Elster's wife. Yes. I guess you'd consider that she would... I think I'll go take a look at that portrait. Goodbye. Midge. (laughs) Goodbye. Midge, you... All right, so that is uh, Johnny, a.k.a. Scotty, played by Jimmy Stewart, talking to Margaret, a.k.a. Midge, about this new case he's on where he's following Madeline, a.k.a. Carlotta, a.k.a. spoiler alert, Judy, and the fa- whether or not she may be possessed by the body of this other person. A.k.a. Is that right? Am I using that term correctly? I, I don't know what AKA stands for. <laughs> really? No, I don't. Okay, I'm kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. It's just, you're, you know, there's yeah, a lot of it in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot there of AKA a lot of going that. on. Um, I, I'm still confused as to why Johnny is called Scotty, or Scotty is called Johnny, but... Do they mention it in the movie? I think it's just Midge's name for him. I, I think that's what he was called on the force, though, too. Oh. At some point, don't they say, like, that? that's what he was called when he was in the force? Hmm, maybe. Anyway... Scotty at this point is skeptical of the story that his, his, his old friend Gavin told him, but he's doing some private detective work that he's never done before. And uh, at this point, he's just very intrigued by the situation, mm-hmm. not, not... And, and by this, this woman. And by the, right. I was right. going to say, not, not the least uh, reason being that... It's Kim Novak. She, Kim Novak, yeah. He's attracted to her. Yeah. But that is, of course, from Vertigo, the movie we're talking about today. And uh, Nate mentioned it a little bit in the the intro. We've both seen this movie, and we both mm-hmm. uh, didn't really, I guess, pay attention when we were watching, or it was it bad was, circumstances for the viewing. I, I don't know. But for yeah. me, I I, I've, I know I've seen it twice, but I don't... You saw it twice before yeah, this rewatch? Yeah. Um, and I know the second time I liked it more, mm-hmm. because I was paying more attention, I think, and I just had a better sense of where the story goes, but... Yeah. Uh, I had forgotten so much of it, even since the second time. But it's, I mean, 
it, people revere this movie. Right. This movie yeah. is held up as like one of the prime examples of great cinema. Sight and Sound, you know, the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound, their top 50 greatest films of all time. This tops the list as since 2012, I think. It's yeah. it dethroned Citizen Kane. Do they do um, it every 10 years? They they revisit that list or is it? Is it? I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Citizen Kane, yeah, long, long uh, held the top spot and same with the AFI list and everything. Right. But uh, Vertigo, yeah. I remember when I first read that, I was like, top. I was like, whoa, that movie? Because yeah. to me. I, I mean, I had seen it once, and I had only seen it once since mm-hmm. before we did this episode. And I remember kind of struggling to get through it. I, I do remember I came around to it mm-hmm. um, by the time it was over. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, I, I it wasn't even my favorite Hitchcock or mm-hmm. or uh, you know one that I would even put at the time in in one of my top Hitchcock movies. Yeah. So it just kind of surprised me. The thing is, I wonder though. If um, we're mostly talking about critics when we say that, Probably. you know, because yeah. when I talk to people who like Hitchcock mm-hmm. um, or just people who have seen Hitchcock, this isn't always the one that I hear from just colleagues or coworkers or friends no. of mine as one of the top Hitchcocks for them. You right. Know? Um, maybe that'll change after we discuss it. You mean people will listen to our episode and suddenly I imagine that we sway about? a lot of opinion in this yeah. podcast. It's uh, we're 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 kind of in the. Back, we're kind of the shadow influencers, right? Um, you don't hear a lot of people talking about yeah. us, but the, the the things people are saying and the people that people are talking about get a lot of their stuff I, from I us. I like to think of us as a, a a movie watcher's movie watcher. I that's probably that's probably the most accurate way you could put right. it. Right? Yeah. And I, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if we at the end of this episode recommend a different Hitchcock movie as probably better than Vertigo. We will see that eventually on that site. It'll take list. some time to, yeah. to, to cycle through it as these things do. I mean, the next sight and sound list, are you going to see Marnie topping the list? Probably not, but 20 years, 20 years, you know, we'll see, you know, the culture moves, uh, sometimes at a glacial pace yeah. and, and sometimes we just are the initial nudge mm-hmm. that we give that glacier. Yeah. If you don't, if you're not familiar with the way glaciers work, they, they get nudged. They, there's, <laughs> they're, they, they, they stay still until somebody nudges them, right. at which point their movement is glacial, yeah. but it, it needs a nudge. Uh-huh. So anyways, enough of that. It, it does feel good to be back, though. We took a yeah, little bit of yeah, a break. Yeah, yeah. You it's have been, um, another I have two uh, kids offspring. Now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a daughter now uh, to go with my son. That's good, and you're, um, you know, you're at least awake enough to speak now for the podcast. Yes, yeah, for now, uh, we'll see. If I you may start fall dozing off, I'll understand. Um, it may just be Nate by the end, right? But you know, in the last episode, we talked about how I, I was going to really need some time off uh, when you have your yeah. child, and I've, I was I, ready to go. Yeah, I know you, you were ready to go, but time. I needed that time, and I'm glad you gave it to me. Thank you for that. So you're um, you're all set. I'm you're good. Good. I feel. I, I feel good. I feel rested. Good. Um, and and faster than I thought, actually. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. So, uh, we, I mean, we 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 already kind of talked about uh, our initial viewings. They're kind of unremarkable. Yeah, unremarkable is the way I would put it, and maybe even somewhat disappointed. I think yeah. when I watched it the first time, I would maybe put it on myself and say irresponsible. That like I think back to it, probably both times I watched it, I was expecting something a little bit different, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it didn't deliver what I had expected from a Hitchcock movie, um, I was just sort of like, "Ah, oh, this one's weird." Now, where was this in, for you as far oh, as no Hitchcock idea. catalog? Yeah. Do you know, like, was it your one of your first Hitchcocks you had no, watched? Or 
Well, so my dad watched a lot of Hitchcock when I was a kid. Mm. And um, I usually got pretty bored watching them when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that's a lot of more kind of of black and white. Yeah. Um, so when I started watching them for myself, I kind of went more with the ones that were talked about by critics. So like Strangers on the Train, um, uh, Psycho, um, North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so Vertigo was somewhere in there, but it was actually probably later than um, a lot of the other ones. I already had kind of an idea about Hitchcock. It wasn't that long ago that I rewatched it, like within the last 10 years. Um, but the second time I watched it, I was like, all right, I'm really going to pay attention to this. Now. Yeah. And uh, I did for the most part. But again, I think it was, I was like a middle of the day viewing. It was one of those. Mm-hmm. That, right. You know, that's partly why I really wanted to rewatch it because I just, I, I feel like I've, I haven't really given it the time it's, it's right worth. Yeah the first time I watched it and the only time I watched it up until now um, was that post-college time just catching up on stuff and I had to catch up on a lot of Hitchcock because the only Hitchcock I had ever seen um, prior to being like in my 20s was I think I saw Psycho when I was in high school. Gus Van Sant's Psycho. Right. I probably (laughs) no kidding I probably saw that one first. Oh really? I've never seen that one. But I never actually saw the full thing it was one of those when I remember I was staying at a friend's house and he had HBO and it was just on and so I saw like Gus Van Sant's shower scene um, before I saw Hitchcock's but I had seen I, I, I mean, knew I it because you see it. I had seen it stuff. because yeah. it's all it's in all these clip shows and right. the, and the score is like everywhere. You yeah. know, so um, it wasn't like I wasn't familiar with what happens. Mm-hmm. But anyways, yeah, I was just going through a lot of Hitchcock, just getting whatever I could from the library, and um, the library had the whole like Hitchcock collection, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I would just get whatever was on shelf. And Vertigo, just I I you know was probably like my third or fourth Hitchcock I watched. Um, and um, I just remember compared to, say, Strangers on a Train or, you know, Psycho or uh, Dial M for Murder, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of other ones that I just immediately was like in and was mm-hmm. with the entire time. And I remember with Vertigo, I just felt like I, I was continually like, I'm not super bored, but I'm just not into this. You know, there was a different pace to a lot it. A of I car like. rides yeah. in this movie. <laughs> and it took a while for me to figure out what was going on. I remember by the time it ended, I was like, okay, that's a good movie. But again, I never thought to even watch it again. And then when Sight and Sound put their list out and it was like number one, I was like, okay, I guess that definitely deserves a rewatch. Mm-hmm. And I never just never got around to it. So mm-hmm. now we're here. It's the 60th anniversary. Right. It has been on my list for a long time to rewatch uh with a closer eye, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Which it's, is probably a big theme of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so on the rewatch, your thoughts? Yeah, on the rewatch, I I did like this a whole lot more this time around. <laughs> well, good. A lot, a lot, a <laughs> lot, yeah. Um, but those moments where I was kind of losing it the first time I watched it, mm-hmm. I know exactly where they were at. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I could, you know, if, if, if I didn't have the critical acclaim pushing me, Yeah, I don't know that I would give it the time or attention. It, yeah. it actually does deserve. It right. deserves all the attention and time you can give it. Well, it requires and it. And it requires it. Yeah, you're right. Um, but I think I'm just, in some ways, I'm still kind of a lazy movie watcher, and oh, I yeah. don't know that I would have done that if I hadn't had just yeah. this sort of avalanche of 
you know, people who know movies saying you need to pay attention to this, yeah. you know. And and I do feel though, like now that I've rewatched it and afterwards even just reading a few essays and and kind of just mm-hmm. picking up a little bit more about it, um, you know, I I I think this is this is the type of movie that rewards more viewings. It rewards taking the time to get into the pacing that the movie sets for itself mm-hmm. um and uh it is it is a different hitchcock movie i think it um, is in some yeah. ways it's got a lot of touchstones no yeah but i mean it, in some ways it's very different it absolutely is the the fact that at the time it was so poorly received i think that speaks to that as sure, well that yeah. nobody at the time was ready for what it was doing right. and i think i read it was kind of in a vault more or less until the he, 80s yeah like, like hitchcock he, himself he uh like didn't even um, make sure it had distribution at yeah. all for a long time. Yeah, I don't know if he was necessarily ashamed of it, but he was kind of a director that understood that movies were for the public, and if the public didn't like it, must not be and that good. Wasn't a point, yeah. <laughs> now, did you see uh, the documentary Hitchcock Truffaut? No, that was really interesting. I saw that this past year, and that really made me want to watch a lot more of uh, Hitchcock mo- movies again and Vertigo specifically because well Truffaut was a um, big champion of vertigo right yeah and of hitchcock in general and like i alluded to in the intro at the time people didn't take him especially seriously like right. he was a good director like you know that his movies were going to make money they were going to be you know but he was he was the director of thrillers and horror movies he did and, mainstream cinema right yeah. and Truffaut was one of the first who said like we need to study this guy's work so he just interviewed uh, Hitchcock about all his movies and put a book out about it. And then the documentary was kind of made about the book and whatever. Um, and yeah, Vertigo was kind of the one that Truffaut really wanted to talk about. And it kind of surprised Hitchcock. I think it's kind of surprised Hitchcock and like um, everybody at the time because, well, Vertigo's Vertigo. Like <laughs> we didn't like that one. It was weird. And right. even Hitchcock won't talk too much about it he doesn't like tell us we're wrong about it right um for as for as stuffy as hitchcock can maybe seem like if you've ever seen him talk or whatever he's also pretty unassuming or or doesn't really he's not too self-important about what he does because mm -hmm. i watched this clip uh you can catch it on youtube uh where roger ebert he he calls into a a show that hitchcock's on with a question Mm -hmm. and he asks him this very like more thematic question basically he's like what would you say about someone who thinks that there's that staircases seem to be a real theme in your movies Mm -hmm. he's like what is it about staircases and hitchcock just goes well they go up and they go down (laughs) (laughs) then he goes he elaborates a little bit but but it's a very sort of it's not anything deeper than it allows me to have the camera move in ways that aren't just left and right you know like it's it's much more back to just the mechanics of i want to make an interesting movie it's not like this deeper philosophical although it could be it's just you wonder how it's not not that it's (laughs) It's just just, that he wasn't yeah he didn't feel the need to to get all philosophical all the time about his work which is interesting because i think vertigo is most interesting when you do get philosophical about it absolutely he knows this, I think. He knows he's digging deep into some stuff, but right. doesn't need to talk about it. Well, because I think at the end of the day, if you weren't entertained by the movie, who cares if there's I think that's his. I think that's his viewpoint, it. yeah. I, before we dig in, I wanted to know on your rewatch mm-hmm. how, how you feel. Uh, well, like you. I mean, I, I have a seven-week-old daughter, so I'm tired most oh, yeah. of the time. 
Uh, and this could be a rough one. Um, it was. <laughs> it, it was. It, I mean, it could have been my the best movie I've ever seen, and I would have been kind of falling asleep. Uh, but around like the half hour mark. I remember, mm-hmm. like, he's just driving around, yep. and nobody's really saying anything, and this is really kind of lulling me to sleep. Um, but like you, I, I, like, doubled down. I was like, I'm really paying attention. And, like, uh, and it was just a little bit longer. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, okay. And I, like, yeah. was with it. And I, I was kind of mad at myself for having right. zoned out the way I did uh, and with the advantage of having seen Hitchcock Truffaut, where they were talking about some of the philosophical, psychological concepts that run through the movie, the the movie was keeping me interested in ways that the first two times I'd seen it, I just wasn't, I, I just completely missed. Yeah. On top of the fact that just for some reason this time, I was just astounded by how every shot is brilliant mm-hmm. and beautiful and yeah. like... It's just such a well-crafted movie. Yeah. That's one of the, just the things that's always thrilling to watch about Hitchcock yeah. is you're just watching a master at work. You're watching mm-hmm. someone who planned out every single shot. Um, yeah. He's not the kind of person who's just going to go in there with a handheld and see what happens. Right. <laughs> you know, like this is a guy who's storyboarding. There's not going to be anything absolutely. on There's, screen that he didn't yeah, put there. Absolutely. And um, and every movement of the camera and, and every single choice is something that was planned out beforehand which is um, and, a little and, and bit executed like clockwork really right. yeah. yeah and it's interesting that he is so precise and exacting this movie also is largely the success of his collaborators mm-hmm. yeah. um saul bass setting the tone with the graphic design with the um opening credits um, Definitely the to me the most memorable opening credits mm-hmm. of of Hitchcock's. Yeah, um, and I still Better don't know. Psycho, I mean, this yeah. is pre CGI, I, and I didn't really catch any of the special features. I don't know how a lot of that stuff gets done back then. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> now we're just like computers, cool. <laughs> but that whole beginning with just the spiral and mm-hmm. the eye, it's, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I that's that had to be trickery. That yeah. couldn't just be done in the computer. <laughs> yeah. Like, how did you do that? Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. And again, we mentioned it in the intro, but Edith had costuming and the colors that were coming through in the set design and the costumes and like frequent Hitchcock collaborator, Bernard Herrmann. This is, uh, next to Psycho. I was going to say, this is probably probably, my favorite score of his. It's, it's great. Well, I probably like it better than Psychos, but I, next sure. to Psychos, it's the most iconic. It is, and it's also, I think, it it's perfect in that it sets Vertigo's, not only tone, but the pacing. We're talking mm-hmm. about this yeah. being a movie that you kind of have to slow down with, or you mm-hmm. have to sort of get into this cyclical routine of it, right. um, which can, on a first viewing, if you don't know to look deeper can get kind of boring to yeah. be honest but mm-hmm. it's all even in the score it's just this sort of laconic dreamy mm-hmm. cyclical thing that mm-hmm. just kind of goes around but it's it's perfect mm-hmm. yeah yeah and then just uh cinematography by robert burks i mean it just all creates this really pretty perfect movie mm-hmm. like film whether or not it is boring at times i think there is actual debate about that <laughs> like go ahead 
be bored by this movie. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Lately, I've been having a, a weird relationship with boredom. Boredom was always the easiest way to to write it off. Yeah. Say, well, it sucks. It's it's, yeah, boring. it's boring. This is boring. You know, it's not capturing my attention. Sure. And um, we're watching Vertigo right around the time I also happened to not related at all, uh, except for in its boredom. Um, I, I recently read Prayer for Owen Meany, the John Irving novel, uh-huh. which can be very tedious and mm-hmm. very boring for about the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. And like Vertigo, which I think is similar, the first half of the movie, I think, can be kind of boring. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's something going on. And yeah. You just are kind of like, what is this all adding up to? Yeah. And it's just, even for Hitchcock, it's just not, you can't tell where it's going mm-hmm. um, like you can with a lot of other Hitchcock. At yeah. least figure like, what are you doing here? Definitely. I can't figure out what you're doing. And it was the same thing with the book I was reading. And I'm starting to gain this appreciation because there are certain things, and it takes a master to do it well, right? It takes a Hitchcock mm-hmm. or a John Irving to do it well, where you can keep people along just enough in that boredom, and then in the second half or the second or the last third or whatever, um, it just pays off exponentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't get that payoff mm-hmm. if you hadn't already set that pacing and that tone in yeah. that first half. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's sort of like because you need to start at that tempo. Mm-hmm to get the crescendo and the speed up at the end. So what, what function do you feel like the boredom is serving in this one? Slower pace, the the kind of curveball of, because it starts very much like a Hitchcock or a, or any sort of like film noir movie where like, you know, setting up the detective, mm-hmm. the private eye thing. And like, yeah, you've got an action scene right wife. at the beginning. Right. Action scene right at the beginning. And then, uh, you know, here's this kind of weird case. Yeah, no, it's very beyond. And it's like, very typical all the way up until he starts following sudden, her. Right. Because you're right, it's very, it's very sort of of the genre. Mm-hmm. I mean, even to where he's being introduced to the case by Gavin. Yeah, I've got to know Scotty, where she goes and what she does before I get involved with doctors. Well, have you talked to the doctors at all about that? Yes, but carefully. I want to know more before committing her to that kind of care, Scotty. All right, I'll get you a firm of private eyes follower for you. They're dependable, good boy. I want you. Look, this isn't my line. Scotty, I need a friend. Someone I can trust. I'm in a panic about this. I'm supposed to be retired. I don't want to get mixed up in this darn thing. Look, we're going to an opening of the opera tonight. We're dining at Ernie's first. You can see her there. I mean, it's very, it's a lot of exposition. Um, It's basically setting up what looks to be a very typical uh, detective story. A lot of lines that could have come from anything. Like, (laughs) what does this all have to do with me? (laughs) Right, exactly. And it really starts to slow down when he actually starts following uh, the Kim Novak character, um, Madeline, or whatever you want to call her. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, Madeline at that point. Madeline at that point. Um, And then to me, where I remember the first time I watched it, it lost me, was when it seemed like he was just going to do it all over again. Mm -hmm. And then she falls in or jumps in, however you want to say it, into the bay. It does jolt you up really quick. And that's where I think the intention is. Like, I think you're Mm -hmm. kind of resting a little bit, just sort of snooping um, uh, detective work, really. Yeah. And it's repetitive. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, something weird happens, and it jolts you up. And then it kind of slows down again. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it takes about that middle point when you realize that, um, you know, she actually was just part of a setup. Yeah. 
And then I think from there on, I'm, I'm pretty much with it. And the movie definitely changes. It changes in what the movie's about. Yeah, It is absolutely. no longer about this. It yeah. is about something completely different. And that I am on board with 100%. Yes. Now, to get me there, you got to sit through a lot, mm-hmm. but it pays off. I think if you didn't have that first half mm-hmm. that sort of made you kind of rest and be confused and, and not really know there's a fogginess to it and you're just kind of like, what is going on here? That reveal of like, that's what's going on. And then a later reveal of like, oh, maybe that's what's going yeah. on. Like, you know. Well, yeah, because <laughs> like there is a conventional Hitchcock movie in this. Yes, yeah. Where you've just got like the detective case, almost like a half hour TV show that could have been like detective case, follows her, oh, she's possessed. She jumps off. No, she didn't. The husband wanted to kill his and wife. And a movie. Roll right. credits. Right. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. It is pretty cool. Yeah. But then, but then <laughs> that's not the like movie. you said, that's not what the movie's about at all. And the boredom isn't just setting up a rhythm and tedium, but it also, it starts becoming really dreamy. And you're kind of floating through the movie. And once you realize you're floating through the movie, you kind of realize Scotty's floating through things outside of his control. And I almost feel like the boredom and the fact that it's, or for lack of a better word, the boredom. The, We're going to use that in a pacing, positive light. Yeah. yeah. The and slow pacing. It's intentional, I think. Yeah. You know. The slow pacing and everything is, is almost, not a commentary, but like an expression of control. Anything you thought this movie was going to be, it's not going to be that. And we're going to make you do something that you're not comfortable with, that mm-hmm. you're going to have to like fight through. This, we're going to control you for a while. And then, I mean, I started realizing this time that Scotty is not in control. And very early on, he's not in control. And they kind of show that through like sort of misty cinematography, like when he first exits the church following madeline into the cemetery yeah there's a couple foggy sort of scenes like foggy and misty and sure it could be san francisco uh the weather just typical to san francisco but it also could be that he's entering sort of this dream world or he's entering into this obsession that he is no longer in control of Mm -hmm. his actions as much as he thinks he is he has been controlled by this situation now and by this woman and we as an audience are also being controlled because we're being forced into a movie and a viewing experience that we didn't really sign up for. Yeah, and you get the sense right away in the movie, um, this is a person who thinks that if they're not in control, they can get themselves in control. Right. You know, that's the way he talks about his acrophobia. Yes. Midge, what did you mean there's no losing it? What? The, 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 the acrophobia. Well, I asked my doctor. He said that only another emotional shock could do it, and probably wouldn't. You're not going to go diving off another rooftop to find out. I think I can lick it. Wow. I have a theory. I have a theory. I think if I can get used to heights just a little bit at a time, just a little like that, progressively, you see, I'll show you what I mean. Here. And what's interesting is, you know, you get to the end of the movie and and, in a way he does, right? (laughs) he does get over it. Yep. Um, So he gets himself back in control, but he loses control of everything else. Yeah. The movie unveils itself to be, uh, as it goes on, one of these movies that you see once in a while. And it's always kind of magical when you see it. The movies that can kind of like, you don't know how they do it. They just sort of fold in on themselves over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, an example might be like The Player, the Altman mm-hmm. movie, or mm-hmm. even in something like Inception. Mm-hmm. You know, like these movies that just, they play with film mm-hmm. almost as if it's like putty. Mm-hmm. You know, like they can just sort of, whether it's the plot or whether it's the... Blue Velvet the, and Mulholland yeah, Drive. I the, think David Lynch... 
but they're, they're constantly like asking you, what is this movie about? And you, you think you got it nailed down. And then you realize when it's all done that it was all those things you thought they were about. Right. You know, like yeah. the first thing yeah. we talked about in the movie, you know, yeah. that was a That's thing. That's not wasted. Right. It wasn't just, <laughs> just a, a complete mystery. Yeah. And if you think about all of those examples, it's Hitchcock, it's Altman, it's Nolan, it's these people who, Altman maybe not so much, but like in that movie for sure, like a, a very clockwork kind of way that you yeah. put your movies together. Yeah, because you know? Altman's kind of famously... Not that. Right. <laughs> but the but, player no, the was player, a different movie. Definitely. You know? And I think David Lynch too. I feel like this movie is a precursor to a lot of David Lynch stuff. Um, Fincher would be another one. Um, sure. I even thought a lot about like Gone Girl and what that movie ended up doing with you uh, when yeah. you watched it. Yeah. yeah. You're right. That is, that's a rare experience. And it's probably good that it's rare because... It's exhausting. It's, probably one of the, it's exhausting, and it's probably one of the harder things to pull off. Of course, yeah. Um, so uh, do we want to talk more about the filmmaking? Because I don't think we can say anything that hasn't been said. <laughs> you know, we're not necessarily going to... Sure. But uh, I, we can I, I talk think about it's interesting our to think about our experiences it, of yeah. it. But um, this time around, I just was flabbergasted by the, the, the level of beauty in this movie. Mm-hmm. Just how... I thought you were just going to say Kim Novak, which I would Kim agree Novak, with. Yeah, she's she's very pretty. <laughs> she's very pretty um, in this movie, and uh, it's so cliche. And it's cliche to say it about Vertigo, but it's cliche to say it. Period. Every frame mm-hmm. of this movie is just striking. That's so well framed. It's so the mm-hmm. color. Everything is perfect. Like the it's kind of a recurring shot. But Kim Novak in profile in the center of the screen. The first time you see her in that red restaurant. Yes, yeah. and then it happens other times it's kind of a motif but that almost has almost like a you know douglas cirque kind of like women's melodrama yeah of the 50s it does but also you know? war kong Wai, i think has used that oh sure in, yeah. in mood for love and like the fingerprint of this movie is everywhere absolutely yeah and um i mean just the green I, so many other movies use color motifs and it's like ugh, okay we get it this movie though it's color motifs the green and the red every time it's just like that's that's perfect mm-hmm. the green of the the flower shop when she goes in there and she looks in the green mirror and there's the green boxes and it's just like so beautiful this right. movie uh at every turn yeah even the bell tower stuff it's mm-hmm. the colors in a different way the more grayscale yes. the more yeah. um when you know that last shot of him looking down Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me of some of the best Technicolor of Powell and Pressburger that's yeah. in like Black Narcissus. You I know? mean, it, it, nuns and bells, like that's <laughs> no surprise that reminds us of Black Narcissus. But, but there's, there's shots in that yes, though that are very yes, similar yeah. color wise too. I mean, not just uh-huh. in the way that they're framed and um, yeah. And the whole sequence in the, in the Sequoia forest, not only are those, the, the image is just beautiful, but the mood that is established and maintained in that, that forest scene when she uh, is looking at the trunk of the tree and says, here I was born, there I died. and But also that it kind of goes through, not all of human history, but like more or less modern history, just in that tree trunk. And then she kind of points out, here I was born, there I died. And it was just like this right barely tiny, yeah, tiny portion of, of this tree. tree. And just the thematic significance of that and just the beauty of looking at that whole scene mm-hmm. and everything. I don't know. Um, did you have any any scenes or anything as far as filmmaking goes that struck you, especially this time? Just the glamour of Kim Novak in this movie, sure, um, which has a lot to do with what he's playing yeah, with, really. Of course, um, but 
the way everything works together, when Judy Barton fully plays the part and yeah. unveils herself after she's put her hair up in the green fog with the music swelling. And at the same time, it's really disturbing. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's dark. This mm-hmm. is not something that you're supposed to swoon over. And you you actually, I, I was reading somewhere, and I totally agree, that in this movie, probably more than most Hitchcock, she, the female is a very sympathetic character. I mean, you really feel for her in that moment, because mm-hmm. even though she was manipulative, she's doing something that's very perverse it's a rape of sorts yeah it's perverse but she's doing it because she loves him like she actually loves him you think so i think so like by then i think she and and i or i mean i don't think she's afraid of him at that point she's definitely afraid of him once he realizes everything you don't think it's maybe more that she's trying to make up for the way that she had deceived that him? could be too i mean it could be some guilt and this gets into the things we can really kind of dig into is um i think she just really loved that experience of being mm-hmm. loved by him. Mm-hmm. But she also sadly and tragically knows that she's never going to experience that again. Well, because he's not really in love close. with her. Because he's, he's in love with an idea of her. Which yeah. is why that shot where she comes out and it's so filtered it's and foggy. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, Kim Novak had been filmed this way earlier and women have been filmed this way throughout film history with that soft filter. You, It's just that film shorthand. Yeah. But... She was so filtered that you she's kind of hard to see. She looks almost like a ghost. And it's right. But it's it's clear in that moment, and it's sort of an indictment on all mm-hmm. moviegoers. Are you in love with that person or are you in love with the filter? And are you in love with the image that you can project onto them and the way that you can control them? And I think that's absolutely that's exactly what's going on, what's going on yeah. there. Yeah, that she is so it's such and an it's so, amazing and it, image. He sees more filter than he sees her. Mm-hmm. It's such a complex feeling of sadness for her, disgust for him, just disturbed at the situation. Right. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, she still looks beautiful. Right. And how sick is that? Yeah. <laughs> because of what's going on. it is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There are so many layers to that, and it's all done visually. So that part, a lot of the stuff that was done with the green, I thought, was really interesting. There's mm-hmm. the other earlier part where you just see her in silhouette, and you, she's still just Judy Barton. Yeah. And um, the green light behind her. Correct. And there's enough of a difference in Kim Novak's appearance that it takes that silhouette shot, I think, for at least for me, as someone who couldn't believe how much I forgot this movie. It to, took me to checking really, IMDb. <laughs> to really sink in that that was Kim Novak the uh-huh. whole time. Yeah. And it's so incredible to me that Hitchcock could do that through silhouette, where you're not actually seeing more details of that. Right. The camera is telling you. This is the same person. This but also, is Madeline. And know. also a ton of credit to Kim Novak's performance sure. for yeah. acting Madeline so differently Different from, from Judy. Judy. Yeah. Just let me talk to you. What about? You. Why? Because you remind me of somebody. I heard that one before, too. I remind you of someone you used to be madly in love with, but then she ditched you for another guy. And you've been carrying the torch ever since. And you saw me and something clicked. You're not far wrong. Well, it's not going to work. See a better go. Please, let me come in. 
I don't know the right way to put this, not just feature wise, but also just in her mannerisms, just not as glamorous. She's earthier, yeah. Earthier, yeah. Yeah. And you understand why Scotty is still fooled. Right. Um, and also why he's not initially attracted to her the way he is when he sees her at the restaurant. So those were kind of the shots that that really got me this time. This is the thing I think we can bring to Vertigo is what did you think about as far as like, what have I done that's like that in my life? Oh, well, you know? yeah, absolutely. Like I'm, I immediately went, my mind went immediately there. I was disturbed by this and you're supposed to be and this is, you know, Scotty's unraveling. So, yeah. um, and I mean, Jimmy Stewart is really pretty terrifying at the end. Yeah, Absolutely. And unlikable and just, yeah. yeah. But he is the everyman. Yeah. So I think Hitchcock's intentionally saying, mm-hmm. every man, where does this apply to you? I, and I, and I, want, I don't know how deep you want to get into it. I got a few things I can mention. <laughs> but I think that's something that Vertigo can continue to speak yeah. to right now, is every man should watch this. I can only speak for men. I can't speak for what a woman could get out of this if right. they watched it. But for me, I felt like it was a huge indictment on the way that... Um, not just the way that we we treat women, um, just the way we view them, the way we yep. look at them, the way we see them, and the way we treat them both. And you know? certainly there's a way that people could distance themselves from this and say how society has trained us to treat women, but whatever, at the end of the day, you're treating women the way you treat right. women. And as I was watching it, I was feeling like there just seems to be a lot, especially about masculine control, because... In this movie, the masculine eye, the male gaze, as it's you know called by theorists, I feel like it's usually thought about passively. But this movie is saying, no, the male gaze is very active and very controlling. And not only masculine control, but also obsession and jealousy. It's his obsession that gets him interested in her he doesn't know anything about her she doesn't speak until the 46th minute in this movie and her first line is why am i here hmm. what am i doing here what happened well you fell into san francisco bay i i uh I tried to dry your hair as best I could. Your things are in the kitchen. They'll be dry in a few minutes. Come on over by the fire. And so the fact that her first line is, why am I here? What am I doing here? It feels like pretty meta. You could take it a couple of different ways. Why is Kim Novak here? Right. It's not... What's her purpose in this movie yeah. for, for you, the audience? Clearly, yeah. it's her glamour. It's uh, the allure of her. Mm-hmm. And then the, that question just has layers, too. Like, why am I here for Scotty? Or like, how did I get here? Why am I here? Um, and pretty much every answer leads back to for a man. You are here because of a man. You are here for a man. All these different reasons point back to that, to this sort of objectification um, and he, at this point, has nothing to love about her except the narrative, and he's controlling that narrative. And if she was in on this whole thing, was she actually unconscious during that whole process? And that's actually something that Eric, who writes in to the show a yeah. lot, uh, said. He said, to me, it's a, it's a stretch that Judy, who apparently allowed herself to be taken by Scotty out of the water to his house, undressed and placed in his bed, that she was able to stay in character through all of that, but couldn't find a way to gain control of the situation later in the story. So it's an interesting idea that she, like, 
Was she like hmm. faking it during that whole process? If she was actually unconscious, then was Gavin willing to let her die right. for the sake of the narrative? Like, any way you look at that situation, it's it's uh, the amount of control she's giving herself up to is frightening mm-hmm. and disgusting. And you see how exacting a, a male's sense of control or what someone should look like is when you see Midge kind of calling him out on it by painting herself into the Carlotta yeah. painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's just repulsed by it. I'm going back to my first love, painting. Well, good for you. I always said you were wasting your time in the underwear department. Well, it's a living. But I'm really excited about this. What is it? Still life? No, no, not exactly. You want to see? Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I, I thought I might give it to you. Johnny. No, it's not funny, Mitch. Johnny. No. Johnny, I just thought. Uh. Uh-uh. No. Let's make that. It's move. controlling to the point where, if it doesn't fit into mm-hmm. the narrative or the fantasy i am painting or writing for myself and just having that reactionary i don't like being presented with what's happening here you know and part of that narrative includes him having to save her as well from the water and from this situation but you're right that's a really fascinating thing that that midge calls him out but what's weird, and I don't get this. This is what I don't understand. Maybe you can provide some insight to it. Is if that's what's going on in that scene, why she feels so stupid afterwards mm. when he leaves? She really beats herself up over. She doing doesn't. That. She's like stupid, stupid. Know. You know, it's um, it's and that's another very too. painful, sad, disturbing yeah. scene. I I don't know. I think in, in today's world, we we kind of say, okay, well, that's the strong female character. Yep. And in that moment, she seems incredibly weak because you think that she's she's really calling him out on this, but ultimately well, you realize that maybe her goal was just to get him to maybe see what he was like doing was her. silly and then like her again, Yeah, you know? Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, make a joke that if he thinks it's funny, he'll like her, or maybe if he can see me in that light, then he will like me sure. as well. Although like, she paints herself looking pretty silly on there, you know? Yeah, to me it's probably a lot more that like, Midge does have feelings for him, mm-hmm. but then um, that's kind of the last time that she knows there will not be reciprocation. Or maybe it's just that she really did, she was really hoping that he would see what he was doing, and instead he just she just pushed him further away right. and knew that he was going to go deeper further and deeper into, into it. it. Yeah. Um, I can tell you some of the things that kind of came to my mind as I was thinking about what Hitchcock or is kind of saying through the Scotty character and the way that he treats really this, this fantasy girl that he's created. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be this week when I watched Vertigo. Uh, I, I told you this on Tuesday. I don't know why it was, but there was something, there's something that just made me want to search and get into like the, oh, yeah. the artistry of Madonna and the she discography. Turned she week. turned 60, which I didn't know. And that was just a weird coincidence actually. She and Vertigo are the same age. Wow. A lot going on here. Yeah. But think about it with Madonna. Her debut album came out the year I was born. So she's someone who I've been, I've, I've known, I think I know. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you think you know these people. And what's interesting about Madonna and what happens to a lot of these uh, actresses and a lot of these, you know, pop singers and things is if they want to stay in the game, they constantly have to reinvent themselves. Mm. And what I found myself doing going through her discography chronologically is I was like, which Madonna do I like better? Do I like the Madonna of 1983 debut Madonna who's, you know, a lot more sort of bright eyed and um, just sort of like wants to conquer the world? Mm -hmm. Do I want the more true blue Madonna that is like the blonde bombshell who Mm -hmm. is like hurting a little bit more? (laughs) Do I want the Dick Tracy Madonna that's like the femme fatale? Do I want the older ray of light Madonna who's like the sort of cool mom, you know, (laughs) like, or, you know, and it really tied back to vertigo for me where I'm like, what I get out of a lot of these performers and a lot of these actors is my idea of them and not mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And that how sick is that that I can kind of pick and choose what version of someone I like better. And yeah. I can say that's the one I like. The other one, maybe don't check out that album as much or maybe don't listen to that album as much. It's not quite what I want out of what I think I should get out of a Madonna album. You yeah. know, like mm-hmm. it made me think about how I treat all of these people or artists who put out things. There's a seduction that happens, but it's completely one way. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in Vertigo. She doesn't really interact with him, so he builds up an entire identity around that, and he which is what we do all the time. If yeah. she feels anything towards him, really. right? Yeah, and if who you are isn't seducing me, try again. Right? Not even I can leave it alone. That's just not for me. It's uh, that's that's something you see a lot more with like the internet. I feel like with the internet, where it's like a woman can't just be who she is. A woman who isn't. Everything you want her to be has opened herself up to harassment. And we even had this with Kim Novak, if you remember, when yes, she came yeah. onto the Oscars a couple years ago. Yeah. And we ended up doing our All About Eve episode out of that yeah. whole situation. Yeah. Uh, where she just, she didn't look good anymore. Right. Something had happened to her. Oh, you know? that's so sad. We didn't like, know her. No. We don't know her. Yeah. At all. I mean, it was like vertigo playing out in real it life. Was. It was. It was. Yeah. Well, and I mean, vertigo was vertigo playing out in real life. Because like... Uh, Hitchcock kind of came down on Kim Novak for being the wrong woman mm-hmm. for for the movie. He kind of treated his female leads the way that uh, Scotty treats Scotty treats um, Judy. Judy, yeah. Um, and that's why people will talk about Vertigo as being really kind of a psychological exploration of Hitchcock. So I was kind of talking about that idea of how we view you know, both literally and figuratively, <laughs> the way we view women um, in in the more sort of like the way we engage with art and women in art. Yeah. There's also the way, if you want to bring it down to the, the root level of our actual relationships with women, mm-hmm. I think it's something that every person who has been married for a long time has to reckon with. My wife is an amazing person, but we met in high school and I fell head over heels for her in high school. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me to think when you're watching Vertigo of how anytime you fall in love with someone, how much of it is falling in love with the idea of that person. Mm-hmm. Understanding that that's probably pretty natural. You know, that, that, that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, that's human nature, I guess. <clears throat> yeah. But how do you combat that by proactively getting to know the real person yeah. and being okay with wherever that their life takes them. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's probably the biggest yeah. thing is loving them enough to l- let them evolve. Right. 
um, when you think of it in vertigo terms, like so much of actual love involves not having control, mm. like letting go of Releasing that control. It. Yeah, then the more that the more control that you try to exert, the less capable you are of loving who that person is. Right. Yeah. Deep stuff here. <laughs> uh, I guess, yeah, I, I didn't expect Vertigo to speak to so many different things. To be so damning in its critique of masculine control uh, and desire, and really to demonstrate the shallowness of masculine desire. Right. <laughs> That's one of the ways that Midge is a pretty tragic character, because she's there to be the one who catches Scotty when he's out, of, when he can't help himself when he's out of control. Um, and because of that, he's never going to be able to control her. So he will never be able mm-hmm. to quote unquote, love her. It really could depend on him. He won't talk. No, he's suffering from acute melancholia together with a guilt complex. He blames himself for what happened to the woman. We, we know little of what went on before. Well, I can give you one thing. He was in love with her. Oh, that does complicate the problem, doesn't it? Well, I can give you another complication. He still is. And you want to know something, Doctor? I don't think Mozart's going to help at all. One thing I do want to talk about that's a little unrelated to this, but um, I would like to get your take on, is I read a couple things that made me... We talked a lot about the dreamlike aspect of this movie. Now, I've heard different theories on this movie actually being a dream. I've heard two theories. I've heard one that when he gets into that catatonic state, when he's got the hallucination, the yeah. cell animation, all that stuff, that everything after that is a dream. Mm. That's one theory I heard. Possible. And then the other theory I heard was that everything after the gutter is a dream. Oh. Everything. Mm. Because you actually never do see him get rescued. It fades to black, and then he's immediately in this apartment with Midge. Um, yeah. And then it just goes from there. And then it ends with him you know, standing at the top of the bell tower I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you feel about it yeah. or, or if it makes any difference at all or if it... I'm not it, sure, yeah. Where I, where I wondered if a dream picked up was the cemetery scene. Well, it's certainly fuzzy. It's and fuzzy. fuzzy, but then he wakes up. Oh, yeah. I guess my question would be why would it all be a dream? Right. What, is, what, is, what would be the point of that? Right. The problem with it all being a dream is if the dream starts when he's already hanging off, I mean, that's the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah. You don't know enough about his character to understand what he might even be learning from that dream. Or you look at a movie like Wizard of Oz. Yeah. There's enough setup there to where by the time she wakes up, you're like, oh, and that's that character and that's that character. And, you know, it it just seems like, like you're saying, what what would a dream do to the meaning of the movie if it was that early on? Yeah. Um, If his dream happened when she died yeah uh, or he thinks she died because she didn't actually die right he thinks that she's dead and then he gets so filled with grief and guilt that he goes into a state where it's basically a big dream state and then then what you have to say is that dream is him trying to think up a scenario where what he did didn't actually happen yeah Mm -hmm. and if that's the case then everything we've said about control it doesn't really go criticized i don't think because then his dream is just like more of an attempt to control not just her, but his perception of what happened to make himself feel better. Yeah, Maybe that is saying more. I don't yeah, know. Um, 
it doesn't seem to have the weight to it, I don't think, no. of if it actually happened and he's actually doing these things to a real person, you know. Yeah. And I tend to I tend to view claims of something being a dream as non-starters or like you've just changed the ground rules now. Yeah. And all you're doing then is just pointing out ways that it could be a dream, not actually talking about like what's there. Right. Really. Now I did I did that to you though in Birdman. I did tell you that I thought yeah, one but section, that, but that to me that illuminated made, a lot yes, more. Yes, it did. You know? you're, you're absolutely the right. The thing with Vertigo to me... That's why my question was, what would it change? It, like, what's the, it doesn't what's illuminate anything no. to me, really. To me, the dreamy quality of things is more about floating through things and losing your, your, losing your personal control right. to an obsession or to a jealousy or to anything that's going to mm-hmm. keep you from making your choices. It takes culpability away. Yeah, I can have terrible dreams. Right. I can have dreams where I do the worst things, mm-hmm. and I can wake up and be like, "Well, it was just a dream. That wasn't me. That yeah. wasn't me." Yeah. If you then go and say, "Well, that was just his dream," yeah, then it's like, "Well, then Scotty's still a good guy, right?" You know? <laughs> you know, and I don't think that's what Hitchcock is saying. I think Hitchcock is asking you to really analyze this person. Mm-hmm. Who is your everyman? Yeah, who's Jimmy Stewart? You right. Know? What this guy's doing is really sick. Yep. And if you're just gonna say it was a dream, then he can just wake up from it and be like, "Whoo." Well, shucks, I sure am glad that was just a dream. Yeah, you know? well, and like, on top of that, we can we can also forgive ourselves for rooting for him or yeah, being on his side. because I was just watching a movie and it was a dream. Yeah. Well, that, but yeah, but even so, like, reckoning with that Scotty was ever the hero of that movie by saying, well, he was just dreaming. I, yeah, to me, it's a lot more fascinating, um, certainly more disturbing and sad, but just fascinating to say this guy did this stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in Vertigo um, that's just questioning how comfortable we should be with what film can do. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little edgy that way. But the more you think about what it's questioning, I wonder, um, as we, as I hope the trend continues to where we're seeing more diverse filmmakers, where we're seeing more mm-hmm. women making movies, it should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, I really hope it continues that way. Yeah. Um, I feel like in today's day and age, you have to say that because before we all assumed it was a given yeah and then it was like oh no not everybody wants that that's crazy no okay i i think we're i guess i have to say yeah you can't just assume <laughs> yeah, you can't but i mean if i just look at even just this year some of my favorite movies i've seen this year so far yeah a lot of them have been done by you know either women or people of color mm-hmm. so i i all that to say that I would be curious to see if Vertigo stays at the top of the list. And it mm-hmm. might not be a bad thing at all no, if it gets dethroned. Not at all. Because it really does, I think, in, in, in a weird way, it sort of challenges what we're talking about a lot with mm-hmm. movie going. Yeah. In a way that I never thought Hitchcock would be the guy doing that no. in 1958. Right. But it's there if you want to look at yeah. it. Yeah. It's almost like once you examine Vertigo that way, it's you, ha- like, you, should, you should do something about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> and one of those things is taking Vertigo yeah. off the top one of, of the list. One of those things is we've got to move beyond Vertigo. <laughs> Good. This is now we've learned this. We need to move on. Yeah. Maybe the next sight and sound will have you know do the right thing. Sure. I could see that. I'd I'd be okay with that. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so yeah, I, we didn't even do star ratings at the uh, no because beginning. I'm super embarrassed by mine. What is it, like three? No, it's four and a half. Oh, okay. That was only because I knew it was supposed to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know the feeling. Yeah. You know what this now, makes... Now, I would honestly, though, I think I think it's a five-star movie, but it's probably the most unique five-star. I, I know what you mean. Because I'm going to say five-star, too, but I was kind of 
drag kicking and screaming there. Like it took thinking about it afterwards to be like, yeah, yeah that's me too. all. That's all there. It's all me there. Too. It's all there. I still had to kind of dig into it to get there. And you that's, know what? It, it makes me think. What other movies have I just written off? Mm-hmm. And then they never do get that critical reappraisal that yeah. Vertigo's gotten. Yeah, and they're just forgotten. I think this is a unique five star in that it's a five star that I'm like, five stars, thank you for your service. (laughs) You know, we'll take it from here, almost. (laughs) Like, not that I don't want to see Vertigo again, or I wouldn't love for more people to see Vertigo and kind of think about it in these terms. But as we've discussed this, and I've kind of come to believe what I believe about it, I mean, it's the Tribe Called Quest album title, thank you for your service, we'll take it from here. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, Best Buds, certainly. Best Buds, yeah. And, this has uh, been fun. Yeah, it really has been. And uh, why don't we go ahead and unveil what we're going to talk about in our next episode of Can We Still Be Friends? Well, it's uh, getting closer to fall, mm. so we're going we're gonna to do our annual... Uh, spooktacular. Spooktacular, that's yeah. right. Uh, holiday spooktacular. <laughs> and... Um, tis the season. Tis the season. As we always for the uh, Yeah. Because it's, it's always a season, and we do things and that tis, tis, tis. it's appropriate mm-hmm. for. This will be our fifth, this is our holiday, fifth holiday spooktacular. And, and now, now we're going to do, appropriately enough for Halloween, Halloween. It is appropriate. It's very appropriate. Yeah. I don't know why we didn't think of it before. Although it's good we, we saved it for now, because this is the 40th anniversary yeah. of Halloween. Which came out in 1978. 1978. Uh, I, I've never seen it. You have I seen can't it. Be- yeah, I've seen it, but it, it was a high school movie for me. I have not seen this movie in probably, what, when I graduate high school? 40 years ago. Or 40 years. You haven't seen yeah. it in 40 years. That's yeah. crazy. Not only is it the 40th anniversary of the original Halloween, not only is the holiday of Halloween coming up, but also there's a new Halloween. Halloween. Not, a, not a new holiday Halloween. No, it's not. Just it's a not new like, movie. Uh, it's not. They're, they're calling it, uh, what, did I, what did I say? Not a, but a, a recalibration. A recalibration. It's not a sequel. It's not a remake. No. It's a recalibration. No. It's Jamie like when Lee. you put a new chain on your bike. Uh, do you recalibrate that? I'm not a I biker. Don't know. That was the what's worst, some, worst What's something example? you recalibrate? Uh, your, uh, your brakes? Your brakes, do you? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You can calibrate those, right? Or is it just that they have calipers? Anyway, you they're... got to pump they, them at some point. They're calling it a recalibration. I'm actually pretty fascinated because it's written by David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. David Gordon Green, he, he's been one of my favorite directors, but he's also proven to be one of the most inconsistent directors. Right, a little spotty. Uh, but he's definitely hasn't really done horror. Danny McBride, you know, as he's found and down, he's found and down. Tropic yeah, Thunder, he's, he's, in, he's in Tropic yeah. Thunder. He's in mostly comedy is where you would right associate Vice Principals that TV yeah. show. Um, so this will be so Halloween, yeah, with Jamie, Jamie Lee Curtis. Curtis. She's in it. She's playing the same character forty years later, recalibrated, recalibrated, um, just like your brake pads, right? And on top of that, Trent Reznor released a version mm-hmm. of the Halloween theme, which. I absolutely love every single thing that guy does, and and it was was great. amazing. But we're talking, we're going to watch the original. John Carpenter directed, Jamie Lee Curtis, non-recalibrated Jamie Lee Curtis, original Jamie Lee Curtis, a classic and foundational slasher movie. I'm sure that a lot of our listeners have seen Halloween, maybe repeatedly. I bet a lot of them have heard of Halloween. Yeah, the the holiday. Yeah. Did they they have the holiday before the movie? I bet. Did the movie... 
I bet real, not. It's a real chicken and egg kind of thing. It is. If Halloween did not exist before the movie, people were probably like, that's a weird word. Yeah. I also don't know how it eventually evolved into children dressing up and getting candy and going door to door. It was so that people like witches could trick you into worshiping Satan. Oh. So that happened. The Halloween came out in 1978. Right. Then all these witches, witches really, decided. Yes. We can use Jumped this. on that idea. We just got to talk to kids into dressing, dressing up and up getting and candy. Thinking they'll door. get candy at our door and then they'll, yeah. they'll come to our door. And, and we'll, we'll call we'll... it Halloween because that's the hit movie out right Right, now. exactly. Very opportunistic witches in the 70s, late 70s, yeah. early 80s. Reagan era witches. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Maybe we'll dig into more of the history in our podcast episode. It's going to be like 80% of it, I think, next time. History of, history of Halloween. Reaganite witches. Reagan witches, the Halloween. Uh, yeah. History has its eyes on us in our Halloween episode. Yeah. Um, so I hope people will watch the movie with us yeah. and uh, join in the conversation. There's a lot of ways to do that. Uh, I'll, I'll name off a few. Okay. One of them is the website. Can we still be friends.net? There's that's where episodes get posted and uh, listeners can comment there yep. and give us their feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is a thing called email. Send a message to feedback at can we still be friends.net. Mm-hmm. Got Facebook, right? Got Twitter at CWSBF. Sorry. For the Twitter handle for the Twitter, yeah. But Facebook is can we still be friends podcast, right? I forgot to mention. You can leave us a voicemail uh, anytime and let us know what you think about the podcast. Give us your feedback by leaving a message at 847-306-9532. Operators are standing by. Just one. Operator is standing by. And if you do enjoy this podcast, uh, consider maybe a nice rating Uh on iTunes. Yeah. That goes a long way. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, But always thanks for listening. Thank you. And we'll catch you next time. Uh, What kind of trial was that? (laughs) I didn't. Were there lawyers? Was just a judge talk? There was a lawyer. Yeah, there was. But it sounded like it was just some dude saying like, you know, I've heard the story. I thought the same thing. And I don't think this guy's responsible. I mean, it barely it, looks like a courthouse. No, it didn't at it all. It looks like it looked it, like it looked like they um, just set up our chairs um, in a room. Yeah, at the mission or something. <laughs> and her husband, I mean, of course we understand why her husband did this in the end, but just like, yeah, she was sick, you didn't do it. What could you do? Women. <laughs> you know, is yeah. the essentially is essentially the verdict I, of yeah. that court. Yeah, you're right.